This morning, we are going to continue through 2 Peter, and we've come as far as verse 12 in the first chapter, Uh, so we're going to pick up there, and before we do so, I actually would like to turn to Luke 9, 27, and this is the story of the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus takes uh, three of his disciples up on this mountain And Jesus is transfigured before him into his glorified state. Um, Peter is one of those three disciples on the mountain. And Peter will reference his experience on the mountain in this passage that we're going to look at this morning. So I do want to go through and read that real quick. Just refresh your memory. So here we are in Luke 9, starting in verse 27. He says, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up to the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened, as they were parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said, While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. And Jesus actually commanded them, Hey, guys, keep this under wraps until I rise from the dead, and then you can tell about this experience. So Peter is one of these guys who just saw Jesus, Moses, and Elijah uh, in their glorified states on this mountain. Now, that would be a life-altering experience for me. I don't know about y'all, but that's pretty wild. And he will speak of this event as a life-altering event, as something that confirms what he already knew about Jesus. So let's start in verse 12. Peter writes, For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So Peter is acknowledging that what he's writing is nothing new. He's just reminding those that he's writing to the truth. And that's extremely important for us, uh, even today. And I know I am likely not teaching all of you something new. Maybe some of you. Maybe others, I'm reminding you of what you already know. And reminding, just bringing these things to the forefront of your mind. That's what this reminding is talking about. Because not that you've forgotten these things, maybe you have, I don't know, but not that you have forgotten them, but that we're just bringing them back to the forefront of your mind. 
just calling them back to your attention. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. And he's not going to stop reminding them. Uh, He says that he's not going to be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. They knew the truth about Jesus Christ, and they were established in that. That doesn't mean that Peter was able to slack off in his teaching or in his admonishing them. Okay? So even though they knew, Peter felt it needful to go ahead and rehash those things that they already knew. In 13, he says, yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. You know, children forget things so quickly. I know most of you here either have children or have had children in the past who have grown up, or maybe you are the child. But, but you tell the kid, hey, don't lick that window. Don't touch anything. <laughs> and then you turn around and they're over there licking the window and just, ah! <laughs> and it's just, it's so quick to leave their minds. What you told them, go over to them and say, hey, what did I tell you two minutes ago? Uh, I don't know. Don't touch the window. Don't lick it. But, but it just flees their minds so quickly. Uh, so you have to remind them. You have to keep telling them, hey, don't do this. Hey, don't do this. Hey, clean your room. Do this. Do this. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I see in Peter here. He's kind of a, a parent to these Christians he's writing to. And um, in Philippians 3.1, uh, Paul writes, uh, along the same lines as Peter is saying here, he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. It's a good thing to hear what you already know. It confirms it in your heart and your mind, um, and it bolsters you against the, the attacks that we're going to look at later in this passage uh, from false teachers. So don't, don't just skip over something because you think you already know it. Okay, we come to these stories in the Bible, David and Goliath. From an early age, many of you have heard the story of David and Goliath. But every time you go back and you study that, God will reveal something new to you. It's not something that's old that you can just discard once you think you know it. Um, It is safe. It's a good thing to hear what you already know. If I was up here telling you a a whole lot that you just had never heard before, that might be cause for alarm, right? Because there, there's, there's nothing new under the sun. You shouldn't be teaching this new doctrine. The doctrine is the same. And for Paul to write the same things to the church in Philippi, it's not tedious, he says, but it's safe. These doctrines, the resurrection of Christ, the death of Christ, These are fundamental dogma to our faith. And so that is what we will proclaim, the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the saving power that comes with that. He says, knowing that surely I must put off my tent. Um, Even before that, he'll say, yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you. Now, to stir you up is an interesting phrase that he uses. And 
when I read that, I thought of like, <laughs> oh, this is hits too close to home. It was a late drive last night. So I was kind of dozing off a little bit. And, you know, you would have an experience. Maybe I'm not saying this happened, but maybe you kind of run off the road a little bit and you're like, oh, and it stirs you up and it brings you back to attention. And I do think that too often uh, in our walk with Christ, we kind of get lackadaisical and we start dozing off and we, we don't keep our eyes focused on what they need to be focused on. But what Peter is endeavoring to do here is stir them up, to jolt them, wake them back up, get them focused again. Okay, And that's, that's what he's saying by stirring them up, to refocus their hearts and minds on what is important. As long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Now, he uses the word tent here, and that's how it's translated. Uh, A more accurate translation would be tabernacle. And it's the same word that's used in Luke when Peter says, Jesus, let me make three tabernacles, three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. It's the same word that he uses there. The tent is a tabernacle. It's a temporary dwelling. It's not meant to be permanent. The tabernacle of the the Old Testament, when that was constructed with the instructions that Moses got on the mountain, that was constructed to be a temporary structure. The Israelites could take that down, pack it up, and take it with them when God called them to move. Uh, It was not something that was supposed to stay in one place. Now, that's interesting because Peter is talking about his body as this tent, this tabernacle. It's something that we have for a while, and it serves a purpose, but eventually that will need to be taken down, and you will move from that tabernacle to another body, and um, it's a glorified body, and I think that that is actually the kind of body that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah show up with here on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, So Peter is saying, as long as I'm in this body, as long as I'm with you guys, I think it's important that I stir you up to refocus you on what's important, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. And John 21, 18 and 19, Jesus foretells Peter's death. And he says it this way. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. Uh, continuing on in verse 19, it says, This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Now, tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down. Uh, they, they took him out to crucify him, and he said, I'm not worthy to die in the same manner as my Lord. So he asked that they crucify him upside down. Uh, that is uh, from tradition, and this was carried out in Rome. Okay, So when Peter was writing this second epistle, he was awaiting his execution in Rome. And so that kind of puts this whole, as long as I'm in my tent, I'll stir you up, notion 
into a bit of perspective for us. Uh, he knows that he's not going to be there long. And, and that's very sobering to me. And, and seeing his attitude towards death and his attitude towards these Christians that he's writing to when he knows that his time is quickly approaching. I think it is right, as long as I'm in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure you ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Now, my decease, this word decease is actually um, very similar to the word exodus. Okay, And it's the same word that is used in the New Testament to talk of the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt. So it's, it's this idea of going from one place to another. It's not the end of everything, but it's the end of one thing into another thing. And this is the same word that Jesus uses um, in this account in Luke of the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, It says that Jesus was conversing with Moses and Elijah about his decease, Exodus, which he was about to accomplish. Now, how do you accomplish your own death? That doesn't make a lot of sense. But when you think of it in context with other scripture, we know that Jesus literally was accomplishing his death. Um, It took great self-control, I'm sure, for Jesus to allow these guards, these Roman soldiers, to whip him, beat him, batter his face in, uh, stick the crown of thorns on his head, hang him up on the cross, while having all the power in the world to stop that. Um, At a word, it could have been stopped. But he chose not to. He was accomplishing something when doing that. He was accomplishing his exodus from the body. And he was accomplishing his resurrection and the salvation of the saints. And that is how you accomplish a death. And that is what Jesus has done for us. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter is remembering these things, and I'm sure that they're fresh on his mind when he writes this. And John, in his first epistle, uh, wrote, and I'm paraphrasing, that uh, the things that he saw were at present playing back in his mind. And I have no doubt that uh, Peter would have been the same way. If you see something like this, it's going to stick with you. Uh, And I think that it was very real to him having actually seen the glorified Christ, Moses and Elijah. He says that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. If you remember back in John chapter 21, 17, um, Jesus commands Peter to feed my sheep. Now, Peter is fulfilling that obligation to Christ. He's saying, I'm writing you these things to ensure that you always have a reminder 
after my departure. He's feeding the flock of God with what he's writing. And I don't think that he had any idea that Christians around the world would be reading this letter that he was writing 2,000 years after he wrote it. I mean, I, I don't think that that ever crossed his mind. And he was just writing this letter to exhort and strengthen the Christians around his area. And here we are today, across the world, from where this was written, studying this, applying it to our lives, and letting the Holy Spirit teach us these things. And that is so cool, because it is a living document. Um, and it's very effectual for informing how we should live. It's not just something that we read, we study, and we appreciate, but we have to apply this to our lives. Um, it's very effectual for us. He says in verse 16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Jesus spoke to his disciples in Luke 9.27 saying, But I tell you truly, there are some men standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. And um, the, this account from Luke says about eight days after. Um, the other accounts in the gospel specify that as six days after. So six days after saying that, that some of the men here would not taste death until they saw um, the kingdom of God. Six days after that, Jesus took these three men up on the mountain and were transfigured before their eyes. They saw the kingdom of God before they had tasted death. And Peter is referring to this moment when he claims to be an eyewitness of his majesty. And if you remember last week, we talked about the word eyewitness and we talked about two different definitions that are used. Um, this specific word used and translated as eyewitness is speaking of a literal eyewitness. Um, last week, we said that eyewitness could, and there are different words for this, but translated eyewitness could mean either a literal eyewitness, like I saw this happen, or it could mean someone who gives a testimony of something. So in the sense that we give a testimony of Jesus Christ, we are all eyewitnesses. But in the sense that Peter is using here, um, he is saying, I literally saw this take place. I saw Jesus in the flesh, and I saw him transfigured, and that informed what I'm saying to you right now. And that's how this is used. But I tell you, there's some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. And now he writes, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Specifically zoning in on this Mount of Transfiguration event um, and rehashing it. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place 
until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now Peter is comparing the prophetic word that we have in scripture to a light shining in a dark place. Now, the world is dark and it's murky. And the word of God, the Bible, these things that we're so fortunate to have, it lights our path. Psalm 119.105, the word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my, my path. Um, it is informing our decisions. It should be. Um, and it's not enough to, to have the word, but you have to have the word in your heart. I'm sure all of us have a copy of the Bible, um, and that's good. And I hope that more people have copies of the Bible. It's the most printed book in history. But it does no good sitting on the shelf collecting dust. It has to be taken in and chewed on, digested, let it sink into who you are. Um, and then it becomes effectual in your life. Now, the Bible is the only infallible truth that we have in our world. And that's not to say, and some people take it this way, but the Bible is not the only source of truth. Okay, it is the only infallible truth. But if I tell you this platform is made out of wood, that is true. But you're not going to find anything in the Bible talking about Calvary Fellowship's platform. Okay, but it is made of wood. We can verify that, and it's true. Okay, but um, the Bible is the source of truth for salvation. It's the source of truth for godly living. And those are the things that the Bible speaks authoritatively on. And there's no question about it. It does not need to be added to or subtracted from. Um, it contains all things for salvation. Um, and the Gnostics of the early church, they were bringing in these heresies saying that, oh, you need extra knowledge. Uh, gnosis, knowledge. They were very heavily... Um, dependent on that knowledge for salvation. And that is so far from the truth. They already had what they needed in Jesus Christ, but in their flesh, they tried to introduce more, more than Jesus, Jesus plus knowledge. And we'll see a little bit um, in a second about these destructive doctrines that false teachers try to bring in. But we know that Antichrist will come with signs and lying wonders, okay? And other followers of Satan can also be granted uh, powers to work miracles. We saw that in Pharaoh's court when Moses was um, performing those miracles by God in Egypt. Um, he was asking the Pharaoh, hey, let the Israelites go. Like, we need to, to go, <laughs> We're, we're not going to stay here with you guys. God wants us to leave. And to demonstrate that God was on his side, God allowed Moses to perform these miracles um, to and against Egypt. And there were certain miracles that the court of Pharaoh, these magicians, 
could actually replicate. Um, and it's, it's interesting when you look at it because the magicians could replicate all the miracles until there was a miracle of creation. They couldn't create anything. They didn't have that power because that is reserved for the one living God. And these little G gods, whatever powers um, are above and controlling these magicians, they don't have the power of creation. Uh, That is reserved for Yahweh. But these magicians of Pharaoh were able to do some miracles. And so the real question is, when you see these guys coming into the world who are claiming to be the Christ or to be an ascended master, whatever they're claiming to be, um, and they show by miracles that they are who they claim to be, how do you react to that? How do you test what they're saying? You do it by testing it against the scripture. And that is how you can tell who is who. And we'll, we'll talk more about that too. Just because you see something you can't explain naturalistically does not mean that it is from the living God. But I am thankful that we have a more sure way to know. And we have this way in Scripture and in the Holy Spirit that is indwelling us. Um, And those two things, the Scripture and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit works to confirm the Scripture in your heart, and he, He teaches you. He literally teaches you the Scripture. John, in his first epistle, writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So there, that last sentence, it's the spirit of Antichrist. Um, It's this spirit that says Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. That is what he's talking about, not the literal person of the Antichrist. I don't believe that the Antichrist is in the world yet, and if he is, he has not made it publicly known. Miracles are not the end-all, be-all of spiritual truth. The Bible is the end-all, be-all of spiritual truth. And it is true that throughout history, God has chosen to reveal himself through miracles. And that's good. And although that is good and profitable for the people that he has revealed himself in that way to, I am thankful that we have a more concrete way of having God revealed to us. We have his written word. So we don't have to rely on the miracles that we see to try to tell if something is of God or is not of God. We have what God actually says about himself. And to me, that is just worth everything. Let's move on to verse 20. He says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture 
is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now he says that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. What he's not saying is individuals can't interpret the Bible accurately because individuals can interpret the Bible accurately. And they do that by this teaching that John spoke of, of the Holy Spirit. And more accurately, what he's actually saying is um, the origins of these biblical prophecies are not a private matter to the individuals who are speaking them. And I'll read it in the Weist translation, and it says it this way. Knowing this first, that every prophecy of Scripture does not originate from any private explanation held by the writer. So it's not even talking about um, the interpretation individuals can make on the Bible. Okay, that's, that's really not what he's talking about here. He's talking about prophecies specifically. Okay, uh, No prophecy should be interpreted as a standalone piece. Okay, Otherwise, we would have some weird things going on. Um, go to Troas and look for my cloak. What do you do with that as a standalone piece? Searching for Troas and looking for a cloak there. It doesn't make sense. You have to take the prophecies with the whole of Scripture and with other prophecies as well. Um, so it is dangerous to just cherry-pick prophecies. Uh, same with promises. Don't cherry-pick promises. Take them in context. But it's dangerous to cherry-pick these prophecies um, and try to look in the current world for the fulfillment of these prophecies. It can get you into a little bit of trouble. And we've seen that happen before. The prophecies that came to Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel stood, if they stood alone from the rest of the scripture, they would not, they, it's not a complete thought. You see, what they were talking about, what they were preaching, has in part already been fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. Okay, and that would not point to Christ if Christ had not come. So we have to take the New Testament, look at the prophecies, and it, it actually spells out some of the prophecies that are fulfilled by Christ, a lot of them. And so we have that to know that these prophecies are true, accurate, and from God. And I will just add real quick that prophet, prophets of God are 100% accurate. There is no error in a prophet from God. If there is error in a prophet, they are not of God because God knows all things and he will not lie through his prophets. In verse 21, he says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Spirit. What he's saying is, Ezekiel didn't speak to you. God spoke to you through Ezekiel. Ezekiel was the pen, and God was the writer. And here we have Peter Pen, not to be confused with Peter Pan. But um, you do see that. You see the writers are just the instrument that God uses. But it is really God who is speaking through them. So in reading this text that Peter wrote, 
Yes, it comes from Peter, but there's a source outside of Peter. And there's a source outside of time. Because these prophecies, if they originated within our time-space continuum, there's no way that they would be accurate. They couldn't be. Because the originator of these prophecies, wherever these came from, had to be outside of time and space. Because they saw what would happen in the future, and they're telling it to the prophets. And that is a, a really good way to know that our Bible is true. Because we have these prophecies that were written down hundreds, thousands of years before they came to fulfillment in the world. And that is pretty cool to look at. In his first epistle, Peter wrote that the prophets longed to look into the things that they were writing. They didn't quite understand everything that they wrote down. And in some cases, they had no idea what they were writing down or why. And Peter writes that they wanted to know these things, like they were curious. But those things were reserved for later generations. Some of them reserved for us. Maybe some of them are kids or grandkids. Uh, But no doubt, we have better understanding of what they wrote than they did. Because we have some of the fulfillments of what they wrote in the New Testament, in the Scripture. And so I thank God that we can go back, look at those things, and our faith is bolstered by looking at those things. We'll start on chapter 2 real quick. Verse 1, he says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. I think it is apparent that false teachers are among us right now. Um, And it doesn't take a whole lot of searching to find them. They're very prolific Now that we have the internet, you can pull up their teachings whenever, wherever you want. Uh, But this shouldn't be a, a really terrifying thing to us. You know why? Because uh, we are actually in a position today where I can tell you, do not believe anything that I say. Just don't. But instead, search the scripture and see if these things are true. You remember in Acts 17, the Bereans, they were more noble than the Thessalonians because they heard what Paul was saying and they went back to the scripture to see if it was so. So don't believe anything that I say, but test what I say against scripture. And that is how you know if it's true. And it goes for everyone, every teacher, every preacher, every everyone that you hear, test what they're saying against the word of God, because that will let you know who is who. Um, And it should not be terribly confusing to us. The Holy Spirit ministers to us to teach us these things. And John talked about that. And the Holy Spirit also rings the alarm when you hear something wacky. You ever hear somebody talking and you're like, oh, that 
that's not quite right. Um, and it's not, it's not that you maybe can cite a Bible verse that just totally refutes what he's saying. You just get that twinge, like, hey, this is kind of weird. Like, this is not the gospel of Jesus Christ that I know. Um, and so that is the Holy Spirit kind of giving you that, that twinge that, hey, this, something's not right here. So pay attention to that, and that is going to help you uh, determine who's who. You'll see these wolves in sheep's clothing, and they'll come into the church looking like us, acting like us, dressing like us, and you, you won't know who's who. But here's how you can tell. A sheep eats grass. A wolf in sheep's clothing eats other sheep, right? So a wolf eating other sheep is not a sheep himself. And that makes sense, right? Uh, Peter says they secretly bring in destructive heresies. More accurately, it would read, bring alongside destructive heresies. What that means is, These guys are not going to completely dismiss Jesus. They're not going to completely dismiss scripture. But they're not going to be telling the full truth. They're going to add something to Jesus. Okay? It's the Jesus plus gospel. And that is not the gospel that we have in scripture. Uh, Jesus plus money. Jesus plus positive confessions. And that is not what we're taught by the the Holy Spirit. How do you recognize a counterfeit bill? If you work for the FBI and your job is to find counterfeiters, how do you recognize if a bill is real or fake? It's not by studying fake bills. It's by studying real bills. Because if you have such a knowledge, such an understanding of what a real bill looks like, you can pick out the fake bills. And it's the same way uh, with these false teachers. If you know your Bible, um, and again, it's not enough to have a Bible, but you have to have it in your heart and in your mind. Let it saturate you. If you have that, the truth, then that alarm will go off when you see something counterfeit. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. That's from the gospel of Matthew chapter seven. Now this serves to bolster what Peter is saying here in verse two. He says, and many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. It's not going to be a few that are led astray. It's going to be many who follow these destructive, deceptive ways. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. This word deceptive here in verse 3 is interesting to me. That word in Greek is plastos. Does that remind you of a word we know? Plastic. They will come in with plastic words. They're fake. They're not real. Uh, These plastic words 
will deceive many. Um, and so we have to be on the watch always. Now, we can detect these false teachers, and in verse 3, he gives some characteristics of them. We can detect them by their exaltation of themselves rather than Christ. We can detect them by their counterfeit talk, the plastic talk, their great and swelling words. And we can detect them by their emphasis on making money. God, in the Old Testament, wanted one-seventh of the Israelites' time. He wanted one-tenth of their increase. He placed a higher emphasis on the person than on their wealth. And it's the same, same thing. Same thing today. He places a higher emphasis on knowing you than having whatever money, whatever wealth increase you have. Um, and he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is not hurting. And you'll hear people begging for money in the ministry. Um, and I use in the ministry lightly in this case. Um, but they present themselves as being in the ministry. And they'll beg you for money. And they'll tell you that the angels in heaven will be uh, berating you for not giving that $1,000 because there's too many vacancies in heaven and you're the reason for it because you didn't give that money to us. And that is simply just so far off track. Um, God is not slack concerning his promises. And um, there will be justice, swift destruction, Peter says, brought to these false teachers. You can also identify these guys by their hidden lives of lust and sin. Uh, and there are several big-name guys who have been exposed for lives of sin and things that we could not imagine. Uh, and it's heartbreaking because those things are plastered onto the Christian community, even though these guys are not Christians. Um, and it's heartbreaking. And it's said in scripture that they will speak of us as evildoers. But it's also said that there will be swift destruction brought to these guys. For the time being, we can't really stop them from teaching their, their destructive heresies. But we can equip believers by teaching the word. So we can equip believers to handle these guys um, at least for themselves and their, their families, people that they have influence with, by teaching the Bible truthfully. And, of course, it's not our job to judge these guys. That is God's job, and he will, he will do that job well. And I have full faith in that. Um, again, God is not slack concerning his promises. Um, so this week, be in your word. Be on the lookout. Because there are these guys around, and they are prowling around, and they're looking for weak Christians that they can lead astray. They're looking for the little sheep that are separated from the flock that they can pick off um, and do so disguised as one of them. So let's close in a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed this week.